So we're studying the full armor of God, and I think when I was thinking about it this week, if, if this is your first, if you missed last Sunday, uh, you can catch it online, or you go back in Ephesians 6, you can read and, uh, and follow and at least understand where, we've, where we started. Talk about the full armor of God, and, and I, I was thinking if, if we had a, if it was a book, and it's not going to be a book, but if it was a book, what would the subtitle be? I would subtitle it, Getting Dressed in God's Best. Because we got the opportunity to put on this, this spiritual stuff that the rest of the world doesn't even understand, doesn't even understand our need for. And yet Paul takes so much time explaining it. And so why study armor? We know in this place examples, we see every single day God at work. Yesterday we had our fall festival and health fair. And I heard so many examples of people who said, I needed to be here because I just talked to so-and-so and it was perfect. I can't believe that this person just said that. And it's one of those God appointments, divine appointment days. We see that God is at work, but we also know that the enemy of God is at work. And that's not exactly the most popular thing to talk about. But we know that there is a devil and that the devil is real and the devil is at work also on our earth. And so the armor of God is a part of God's battle plan in helping us prepare for the spiritual battle that we're all in in this world every single day. Now, non-Christians are affected by the spiritual battle every bit as much as Christians are. Does the devil have the same tactics? No, but the goal is the same. The goal is to draw our attention and our affection, our hearts, our minds away from God so that our souls are lost forever. That's what his plan is. We talked last week about how there is this battle that's going on in the spiritual realm exists around us all the time. And it's a war, not a battle, because the war has been won. God won the war with Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. The war is won, but the battle goes on. And the battle is for your heart. For your mind, for your uh, your affections, for your soul. Because, see, Satan can't beat God. That battle, that war is done. But Satan can draw you away from God. And so he fights these individual battles with us as people. And yet God has given us the armor of God because on our own, we can't withstand, we can't possibly win that battle. We can't win it because we feel it, but we can't see it. It it exists in a realm out there that is beyond what our vision allows us to see. So we have to trust in God's word. And you know in your experience there's things that are going on out there that you just don't have good explanation for. So we understand where armor is, at least in a general sense. But the armor of God, that sounds a a little bit obscure. So when Paul talks about the full armor of God, he's drawing a parallel to the battle wear that a Roman soldier in the first century would have worn. So my man Quinn today has transformed from a t-shirt wearing blue jean guy who lives in our day to a mannequin who is going to become more and more in the look of a Roman soldier. See, that was the idea that Paul gave to people, this this understanding of uh, something that was around them every day. They were clear about what Roman soldiers were. They were familiar with Roman soldiers and they were terrified of them. This idea of armor was very, very clear to first century Christians in a way that isn't clear to us because we don't see people walking around in battle dress every day. See, they were familiar with Roman soldiers and they were terrified of them because they were the enforcers of Roman law. 
They were ever-present as an occupying army. They were known for their brutality. They were known for their lack of compassion and what they said and what they did and what they wanted was all that mattered. There was nobody that had the authority to stand up against them. They were fiercely well-trained soldiers, skilled and experienced in the art of killing. A brutal example of that is in the New Testament passages that talk about the way that they put Jesus to death. They knew what they were doing, and they were good at it. And they were brutal. So for first century Christians, the idea of the armor of God sounds like a great defense against the Roman army. But really what Paul was trying to do was to get us to think about something that didn't exist in the physical world the way that it existed spiritually. And Paul reminds us that people aren't the real problem. Evil is the real problem. See, what Paul wants to make clear as he opens this passage is that our job as believers is to stand. He uses the word over and over. We are to stand against the devil. We're to stand in the midst of this battle. We're to stand against whatever it is that he throws at us. And so the armor of God helps us to do that. So often we, we hear about people saying, well, just run away. Get out of trouble. Just avoid it. Go somewhere else. Hide. Paul says that in this spiritual battle, we are to stand and to stand firm. Why? Because this battle is for possession of our souls. And I realize that sounds like something that the world doesn't talk about very much, but if we don't talk about it within the church, we're really missing the point. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be real clear. If you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to open up with the passage we looked at last week, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's the introduction to the armor of God. Stand, stand, stand. Don't run away. Don't hide. Don't pretend it isn't real. Stand. So we're going to start in verse 14. Again, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Well, we're familiar with belts, but we're not familiar with first century Roman military belts. They were more than just a belt. It was more than just something that held up a pair of jeans. In and of itself, a belt isn't a very intimidating piece of war gear. But in an age age where the fighting was done with swords and spears, the belt became very important in a way that we can't entirely appreciate. So with the help of my man Quinn, we're going to talk about a Roman belt for a moment. It was often attached and connected to this thing, which had a whole other purpose in protecting the soldier. But the belt itself ran right through the middle section. And they would tie it, and in terms of battle, they would cinch it up very tight. And it did more than just hold what looks like the skirt up. What it actually did is held all of the clothes that were underneath the tunic that they would wear. It held them close to the body, because when you live in a world where when you go to war and it's spears and swords, having loose-fitting clothing could cost you your life. And so the belt kept everything close. It kept the wind from catching and blowing it away. It kept a sword from catching something, or even worse yet, from slowing a soldier down in the heat of battle. 
the belt functions similarly also to what a weightlifter's belt would do today. It strengthened and supported the back and protected the muscles and the organs of the lower abdomen. It wasn't just a little belt. It was a big belt with a very, very specific purpose. People who just walked on the street every day didn't wear ones like this. See, when the belt was cinched tight over a soldier's tunic, it gave extra strength to his core muscles, which gave him more ability to fight. It gave him fighting strength. And it extended the time that he can stay in battle because he didn't wear out quite so fast. Every motion our body makes in one way or another involves these core muscles. And the belt of truth supports and protects our core. And so the people of the first century would have understood the importance of a belt. That it encompassed around you and it held you, very literally, it held you together. So when Paul talks about the belt of truth, by adding that, all of the understanding of what a belt does gets tied to God's truth. So if you go back to that introduction Paul gives us in this section, he encourages us to stand a whole lot of times. What does it mean? It means to stand firm. It means to stand strong, stand up straight, stand steady, stand balanced. Stand tall, stand unwavering in God's strength, not in yours. Because the belt that helps us to do that is the belt of God's truth. See, first and foremost, the belt of truth helps us to do that very simple thing, to stand in the midst of a battle that we don't completely understand. What Paul is telling us is to tighten around our waist, to gird ourselves up, some Bibles say, the truth of God's Word. If you're fully encompassed in God's Word, if it surrounds you, if you're wrapped up in God's unchanging truth mentally and physically, emotionally, spiritually, then you've got the first defense that we need against the enemy of God. Why is that? Why is the belt of truth so important as a first defense? Because the enemy of God is the devil, and the devil, the Bible says, is a liar. In fact, the devil is the father of lies. If God is love, then the devil is the opposite of love. If Jesus is the light in the darkness, which is the Bible says over and over, then guess what the darkness is? The darkness is the realm of the devil. And his lies, and his schemes, and his deception, and his plans, and his destructive intentions for your life. But Satan has another trick, and he's been perfecting it for a very, very long time. What he does is... He pretends to be the light. He pretends to be the one that helps us to understand more, to really know what's going on. He actually wants to present himself in a way that says that on our own, we know better than God knows for us. Like somehow what the devil wants is better for us, even if it goes against what God has already told us he created us for. So there's an example in the Bible, because I wanted to find something that wouldn't be offensive. Get to more of that later. There's an example all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. If you've got one with you, go to Genesis 3. It's Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you go back to the history here, God creates Adam. And God puts him in the most perfect place that he created, the Garden of Eden. But Adam was alone. So after God had populated the earth with plants and with animals, and Adam had named all the animals, God says, you know what, I'm going to give you a partner, and God creates Eve. But before he does that, when it's just Adam... God says to him, he says, Adam, you can have the whole Garden of Eden. Everything that's here is yours to enjoy. Look at it. Enjoy it. Use it. You can eat anything that's here except for the fruit of one tree. 
There's the fruit of one tree that you have to leave alone. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam. Everything else you can have. But that one tree you are not to eat from. God creates Eve. Adam has a wife. Adam does his job and he explains to her, we can have anything we want in the garden, but we can't eat from that tree. So Eve understands. Well, it doesn't take very long for the serpent to show up. And the first thing the serpent does is that trick that the devil has gotten so good at. He goes to Eve, the one that the prohibition was given to. No, it was given to Adam. He goes to the one that he can plant the seed of doubt in. And he gets Eve alone, even though Adam was the one God talked to. He gets Eve on her own, and he begins to put doubt in her mind. He begins to get her to question. Because, see, God had made clear to Adam before even Eve was even on the face of the earth, this is what you can do, this is what you must leave alone. So one of the first things that we see that the devil does is he separates God's people away from each other. Temptation and sin are a lot easier when you're not living in community with other believers, when you don't have other believers to talk to, to share your concerns with, to say, hey, I'm really getting close to something or I really want to avoid something. The devil gets us off on our own and gets us thinking by ourselves. He gets into our minds in a way that if we don't have someone else to help pull us back right, we may end up getting a little bit lost. So the enemy divides God's people so that he can start to work on our minds. And the serpent says to Eve, in the middle of beginning of chapter 3, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? He gets her to question what she knows. He gets her to question what Adam told her. He gets her to wonder, did she really hear him correctly? Maybe God didn't mean quite that. He plants the seed of doubt, which is the same thing he does in you and I. Now, it's important. I've heard people preach on this and say, Eve just completely blew it. I disagree. Adam completely blew it. God gave the prohibition to Adam. Adam's job was to help protect his wife and to make sure that Eve did what God had told them to do and not to do. So Satan says, God, did God really say you should not eat of any tree? No. But she was beginning to doubt because Adam wasn't right there. That's not what God said. God said, you should not eat of this one tree, he said. So the serpent is tricky. He's manipulating words. He's getting into her mind and getting her to doubt and to question herself. He's isolated her and now he's misquoting God as though he's doing it right. And what does that do? It, it gets her to doubt her memory. It gets her to doubt her husband. It gets her to doubt everything that she thought she knew. And Satan does the same thing to you and I. He gets you to doubt did she really say that? Does he really love you that much? You're not that big a deal. People don't really like you. They just invite you because they feel bad. Satan puts all these little doubts and these questions in our mind to get us to, to wonder about and to question and to be suddenly concerned about our place in the world. And that's what he did with Eve. Just enough of a whisper in her ear that she began to doubt what she knew and who she was. So her response is, she tells the snake, that if they eat of this tree, they'll die. That was what God had told them. See, this tree contains the knowledge of good and evil, so then the serpent does what the devil is so good at. If we stop him and say no, the first time he comes back again and he appeals to our ego. He appeals to that little bit of arrogance that we all have, wanting to be a little bit better, a little bit smarter, a little bit more unique. And he says, you're not going to die. 
In fact, you'll be just like God and you'll know good and evil. In fact, you are going to be the same as God is. You're not going to die. And so often, what we hear when we know right and we know wrong, the devil says, it's not that big a deal. It's not for you. You're special. You're different. You're the exception. The devil flat out lies because the enemy of God is the father of lies. And Eve knew the truth. But instead she eats of the fruit and she gives some to Adam. And voila, their spiritual eyes are opened and they know that God was right. They know good and evil. And immediately they knew that they had sinned. And as quickly as that, the battle for your mind had begun. See, Satan doesn't begin the battle doing anything in any other part of the world around you other than starting with your mind. Because if Satan can get you to question yourself, if he can get you to question your identity, if he can get to question whether God really loves you, you know what, maybe you're just too far. God, God doesn't love someone like you. If Satan can get you to wonder that, there's a whole lot that he can do from that point. See, the serpent got Eve to trust him and to be disobedient to God. And he does the very same thing today. So here's the problem with Adam and Eve. I don't think that Eve was the one that created this situation. It was Adam because he was a total wimp. He didn't stop the serpent from having this private conversation where he began to deceive his wife. See, God gave the law to Adam, not to Eve. Adam was responsible for seeing to it that God's law was obeyed, just like as parents we're responsible for our children understanding and knowing who God is. See, Eve, she wasn't without her own responsibility, though. She knew God's law. She knew what Adam had told her. She knew what what she failed to do was to follow it. So knowing the truth does not mean that we live in or follow the truth. She heard, but she ignored And that's so much of what happens with us. That we hear, we know the truth, but we ignore the truth because the devil convinces us that we're a little bit special. The reason she ignored was because the serpent made ignoring God sound better for her than obeying God. See, if you'll just forget what God said, you're going to be just like God. You're going to be as powerful as Him, Eve. The Bible says that she decided the fruit looked good for eating, and so she took a bite. Satan convinced her that something was true that God had told her was not what he wanted them to do. And the thing is that nothing about the enemy's tactics have changed over all these years. Satan still convinces us that disobeying God is better for us than listening to God. So so what about you? Do you know what the Bible even says? Do you know and do you read and do you study God's Word for yourself? Or are you engaged in a spiritual battle that you don't even have the basics of the playbook? Do you know what God says is good and what God says is evil? We've got the Ten Commandments. We've got Jesus' words to his people as he lived and, and ministered for three years. If you've got one of those Bibles that has red letters, all those are the things that Jesus said. That's pretty important stuff. And then there's the letters of Paul that he wrote to the early churches telling people how to learn and to understand and to obey God to live as Christians. The problem is that just like with Adam and Eve, For as long as there have been people, Satan has tricked us into thinking that we're smarter than God or we know better than what God knows, at least for us, because we're the exception. He's gotten so good at doing that, some people don't even see it happening anymore. But but see, not even Jesus was exempt from Satan's temptations. Bible talks about that. When the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert, it said he fasted for 40 days and nights and then he was hungry. 
And the devil showed up. And the devil masqueraded as someone who had real power to give to Jesus if only Jesus would bow to the devil. If only he would take up the temptation. But instead of trying to outwit the devil, instead of trying to outsmart or outtalk him, what Jesus did was quoted Scripture. He relied on God's truth as a way from turning to temptation. Jesus himself used God's truth. He was wearing the belt of God's truth out in the desert. And that was what he used to defeat the lies of the enemy. If Jesus does that, why would we try to do anything different? Why would we try to think that we're the exception? Why do we try to think that we're different? Why would we try to do something other than to fall back on God's word? And yet what we do is we say, well, I can do a little bit. I'm not sure anybody will find out. I can try just to taste. You know what? I can do it just once. I can watch for just a little while. I can fill in the blank. And the truth is that God loves you so much that he lets you make those choices. You can. But what we find very quickly is what we can do is stop. We can start, but we can't stop. Because Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's going to tell us that the result of that first little step is much more glamorous than what it really turns out to be. Satan is an illusionist and a magician and a wordsmith. And he twists things up and he jumbles words in his favor so you don't even know what the Bible really says if you don't study the Bible. And like Adam and Eve on our own, which is why the serpent got Eve on her own, we're very weak. And rather than confronting him with God's word, we try to out-talk him or outsmart him ourselves. We need God's belt of truth. So what's the truth? Well, the Bible's really clear about who God is. We understand from the beginning to end about who God is. And so much of what we read is that God is love. The Bible's also clear about who the devil is. The devil is a liar. He's a deceiver. He, he is a lawless creature who has no love. But see, here's the thing. The Bible's also clear about who you are. The Bible is very, very clear about who you are and how you have been created in God's own image. But what the enemy of God wants you to believe is you're just not good enough. You're just not doing enough. You haven't tried enough. You haven't read enough. You haven't given enough. And yet you have been created in the image of God. And in case you think the devil isn't real or that he's that bright red cartoon character with the horns and the long red tail, the Bible tells us who Satan is. Tells us what his nature is, how he works, what he does, what his goals are, what his intention is for your life, and what his future is. And Satan knows what his future is as well. See, the Bible said, Jesus himself said he came to defeat the works of the devil. If the devil wasn't real, why would Jesus have said it? See, the future of the devil for him is not a good one, but for us it's a glorious one because God wins. That war is over, but the battle is for your heart. Last Wednesday night, right here in this room, we started to study a new book. About 30 of us got together. We started to study the bait of Satan. The whole point of the study is to recognize how Satan uses your belief in your right to yourself in order to be offended by the words and the actions and the beliefs and the behavior of others. But what we realize, once we give our lives to Jesus, we don't have that right to be offended anymore. We can be troubled that someone says something against God. But we don't have the right ourselves to be offended by it. 
See, Satan twists God's truth and the result is this feeling of offense and we get upset and we start to build a wall. And before you know it, you're separated from people who used to be good friends, people who you used to spend time with, people you used to love and appreciate and enjoy, but they did something that you got offended by. And the belt of truth actively confronts the lies of Satan with the truth of God. So it's not too late if you want to join us, 6 p.m. right here. Come on this Wednesday night. We're going to pick it up and keep on going. There's a very good reason we're studying the bait of Satan at the same time we're studying the armor of God. And the reason is that when we begin to understand the armor of God, Satan is going to do everything he can to, to find holes in it, cracks in it, find ways through it. Because this battle is a very real one and it's a spiritual one. So Paul, when he talks about putting on the belt of truth and putting on the other pieces of armor, it's a word in the Greek that says to put on and to leave on permanently. So someone in that day would have understood when you put on the belt of truth, you put it on, on the day that you put it on, you never take it off. It's on all the rest of your life. You put on the truth of God and you don't take it off. You don't step away from it. You don't set it down. To take it off exposes our bellies and leaves us vulnerable to the lies of the enemy. And there's a lot of verses in the Bible. There's a lot of scripture that talks about clothing. Clothing's pretty significant in our world. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, the Bible gives a lot of ink to what we wear, what we should wear, and in some cases what we shouldn't wear. It, it makes sense, and you and I know why, because our clothing is a pretty good expression of who we are. You think about what you're going to wear in the morning at some point before you go into the day. Maybe you don't give it a lot of thought. Sometimes maybe you give it hours of thought. Because clothing is an expression of our inner self. There, there are styles of clothing that you put on and you go, you know what, I feel like my best self today. I feel confident. I feel strong. I like the way I look and this is going to be a good day. Then there's some styles of clothing that people spend a fortune on that there is no way in the world you would ever go out in public in. They would, but you wouldn't because it doesn't tell people who you are. It makes a statement about a kind of person that you're not. Clothing makes a, a statement about our heads and our hearts and where we are and what we think of ourselves. The belt of truth makes a statement about your head and your heart. The armor of God is more than just a spiritual metaphor. The armor of God is to serve as a constant reminder, and the belt of truth is to serve as a reminder that we should always be surrounded by God's truth as we live it, as we learn it, as we grow in it, and as we share it with the world around us. Because the world is filled with people that are fighting their own spiritual battle, and they don't even know what they're up against. So the belt of truth, what is it? At the end of the day, it's a reminder of God's character. And we put it on, God's truth becomes a part of our character. We step in to that likeness of whom we were created. When we know God's truth, we can know who we are. We can know the truth of who we are in God. And if the world understood that simple fact, who they were created to be, whose image they were created, so much of the nonsense that's going on right now would disappear because people are constantly trying to reinvent themselves in what they want to be true for their life, but is only another lie of the enemy. And it doesn't take long for most people to figure that out. In John 8, Jesus himself said, If you abide in my word and are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the belt of truth is a reminder not to run away, but to stand. To step boldly into the battle knowing that it belongs to the Lord. And when we live for His glory and not our own glory and our own pleasures, we put on His armor and He begins to fight the battles for us. That's the good news because we know that the war has already been won. We know that God wins. So with the armor of God, 
We battle in victory. We don't battle in vain. In the victory of the war for your soul so that we can be sure that God has already won in Jesus' death and resurrection. Maybe you're struggling and you don't know that. There's going to be people after the service. They're going to go from the back of the church to the front. They're going to be up here. They would love to pray with you and to pray for you to help you sort out who you are in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for the belt of truth. Thank you for your armor. Thank you that you give us a way to engage the spiritual battle around us, not on our own, but in you. Help us to know who you are, God, so that we can know who we are, who you created us to be, that we don't have to live this life on our own, but we live this life in you with you, for you, and through you. In Jesus' name, amen. God's truth is not negotiable. It is never changing. And despite what the world says, it is not relative. The truth of God is absolute, and it is eternally unchanging. And for that, we can give thanks. We're the ones who try to negotiate and change it. We're the ones who go in and try to say, that maybe that's not what God really meant or we know better. And yet the Bible warns us that we're not supposed to change the dot on a single small letter I in the Bible. God's word is God's word, unchanging. Do you know God's truth? Do you accept and believe and live it? My challenge for you this week is simply this. If you don't believe in Jesus Open up a Bible and try to find a reason why not to. If you are walking with Jesus, but you don't read your Bible very much or not at all, start reading it a little bit more and find out what more of God's truth for who you are is. Maybe you've been steeped in Scripture and you've walked with God your whole life. You know what? There's always more that we can read and more that we can learn. God's truth is our defense in this spiritual battle.